0: Welcome to Reformations, the podcast of the Meter Center for Calvin Studies. Today, I'm delighted to welcome my colleague and friend, Susan Felch, professor of English here at Calvin University. Susan, welcome. So good to have you here. Thank you. Um, We're going to talk about various topics as we go through this time together, but I thought I'd start by asking you what led to your interest in writers and thinkers of early modern England, since that's your area of specialization.
1: It is. It's just such a fascinating century to me. And I think that I'll explain it the way I often do to my undergraduate students when I'm first introducing them to early modern England or 16th century, 17th century England, but particularly for me, 16th century England. Mm -hmm. I explain it to them as being a century of news, N-E-W-S. Yep. So... I start with, it's the new world, right? Mm -hmm. 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Mm -hmm. So you have this opening up of the world to this little island of England Mm -hmm. uh, in its um, competition with Spain and in its explorations. And so suddenly the world just looks different yep. to everyone even to ordinary people and certainly to sailors, adventurers, kings and queens, merchants. Mm-hmm. So the world suddenly expands. It's also a world of new learning. Yep. So we call that humanism. And so there's been a, a there's a, a an aura of suspicion about but also just weariness with the way that teaching has been going on for several centuries. Um, and there's a new excitement, particularly about language. So humanism mm-hmm. is very much about a re-interest, not just in the ancient languages, but in language generally, and what we call rhetoric. Sure. Um, and there's a whole development of new pedagogies and an interest in women learning to read, as well as men, as well as not just the upper class, mm-hmm. but sort of spreading throughout all the classes, particularly in England. So there's an an excitement that there are new things to learn, new ways to learn. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one of the aspects of new learning that we always enjoy, uh, my students always enjoy, is copiousness. Right. Um, The idea that you don't just say something one way. You say it many ways. Mm -hmm. For the sheer fun and play of language. Mm -hmm. So can you say the same sentence 12 different ways, 15 different ways, or as, if you're Erasmus, 400 different ways, uh-huh. yes. Um, and so the, this fun and play that comes along with the new learning. So the third one then is the new religion. Mm-hmm. Now, in the 16th century, no one called it the new religion. Novelty, newness is kind of a bad word. Mm-hmm everyone is really contending for what does the old religion actually mean. Right. But as we look back on it, it it sort of helps for us to think about, okay, Mm -hmm. um, something new is happening with Christianity. And Mm -hmm. the Jews have been officially expelled from England many centuries earlier. They still are in England, but they cannot practice their faith openly There are very few Muslims in England, although they are an important force in the world. Mm -hmm. So most people in England are at least nominally Christian. And so the the dispute becomes, what does Christianity mean? So Mm -hmm. we know this as the Reformation, right? And it, it comes to England in quite a messy way through the reign of Henry VIII and then on through the reigns of his children, so mm-hmm. I don't know if we w- probably don't want to get into all of that right sure. here. But anyway, the new re- the new religion or the contest over what does Christianity mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fourth one would be new people, right? So partly because of the decimation of the plagues in the previous centuries, Mm -hmm. a a lot of space has opened up for the rising middling class. We don't really want to quite call them the middle class. Perhaps better, the merchant class. Mm -hmm. Cities are becoming important. The merchants are becoming important many of the important people in court are no longer nobles or people of ancient landed families Mm -hmm. who have lots of land but not very much money it's the people who actually have coins in their pocket who become important and these become the diplomats they are people who are running the businesses both men and women and serving in court Mm -hmm. so this whole rise of the middling class the new people. The fifth one would be the new science right so Aristotle and his way of thinking about science is being challenged by new experiments, and the whole notion of experimenting is beginning, um, and there are all kinds of new ways of um, helping people become more healthy and herbs right. in particular, so herbal medicine again. Performed both by men and by women, distilling, mm-hmm. which has been in other parts of the world for a long time, it comes newly to England. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of interest in science. And finally, mm-hmm. six, I would say the new language that is English, as a language that is understood to be the language now of the court, right? The language to some extent of law, mm-hmm. of education certainly of the Bible and religion. Absolutely. So a big emphasis on English. So a lot of people, if you think about the 16th century, you're thinking about, uh, if you're a literature person, Spencer, Sidney, Shakespeare, these great sort of founders in some way of literary English. They come at the end of the century. Mm -hmm. But at the beginning of the century, there are very important people who are writing in English, and particularly writing in English for the purpose of religion. And we'll yes. probably get to one of those in a bit because he is the subject of my research
0: at the moment. That's just one of my things. So as you're thinking about the new things, where does printing come into this? Is that also on the category of new things? Ah, yes. Yeah. So
1: absolutely, the the establishment of the printing press. I suppose I think of that as sort of a, an overall technology or part of the new science. I was
0: wondering about that. Yes, yeah. and it
1: also obviously becomes very important with the new learning. Mm-hmm. But... Um, the advent of the printing press, that would, which allows for many people to have access to the mm-hmm. written word. So you can see how this is important to the new people, right? Yes. It, it gives access to the middling class, even to apprentices in yes. the middling class, to learn how to read, to actually have um, cheap sort of paper in their pocket. Um, and so that spread of news, mm-hmm. if you want to, to add another category, I guess you could say the new news. Yes, The ability of information to spread. So it's not just the printing press itself, yes. right, but that it enables so much more information. It is a true information technology. And so I guess one of the things that fascinates me about the 16th century is how many of the disruptions, mm-hmm. socially, culturally, religiously, Are not dissimilar to those we experience today absolutely so there are so many ways in which it becomes a a very helpful mirror Mm -hmm. for us to look back to see what was happening when there are so many changes at so many levels Um, in the same way that we experience so many changes
0: at so many levels
1: but that was true 500 years ago
0: absolutely I mean I think the the dissemination power of the press the press as disseminator is really a a game changer in some ways Um, because it puts things in people's hands in a much more rapid way and again this this idea of the mirror i mean they have the concept of fake news in the 16th century. Absolutely. It is a concept, a live concept for them. And
1: there's lots of controversy about what is true and what is not true. Mm-hmm. Um, so this this notion of dissemination, of, of a technological advance, and that you cannot go back the way it was. Yes. Of course, there are people who are nostalgic who are still writing manuscripts, sure. but it becomes a kind of hobby. It mm-hmm. becomes something for the rich. Uh, it becomes something special or quaint. Mm-hmm. Um, you can cannot go back to
0: non-print
1: once you have print.
0: And then the control of printing becomes such an important facet of early modern authorities' desire to yeah, get a handle on what's right. going out there. Um, the whole p- growth of censorship, yes. and that's an. E- I keep telling my students, it's an equal opportunity activity. It's not the bad Catholic censoring the poor Protestants. No. It's incredibly powerful the other way around as well.
1: Yes, and and many different and all the ways that people circumvent yep. censorship as well. Mm-hmm. So. Um, one of the books that I'm working on right now was a censored book, mm-hmm. and it was printed in 1528. So you think, oh, you don't have many copies. We actually have 12 extant copies, which is a lot yes. of copies. Survival for that for time period. A book printed that early. I th- and we at least surmise it's partly because it was banned. Mm-hmm. Therefore, copies, which did were distributed and printed. Yes. Despite it being burned and banned, yes, um, were carefully preserved. Yes, um, and therefore we probably have a better record of that book than we do of some of the books that were uh, not considered controversial at all and just sort of got used up like our paperbacks,
0: like catechisms or primers or yeah, anything like that yeah, that, that goes that pretty quick. So to so let's segue into your current research project, because uh, it sounds like there's a lot of excitement there about there that. There is. Okay. Go for it.
1: All right. So uh, I think we're going to talk a little bit more about Anne Locke later. I am mm-hmm. just this week putting the finishing touches on my second big book on wow. Anne Locke, which will come out 20 years after my first big book on Anne Locke. Uh, so that's very exciting. So it's a current research project in that I'm wrapping it up, but yes. my current current one, the one that I'm doing research on at the moment, is William Tyndale. So okay. Tyndale is a very interesting figure whom lots of to whom lots of people refer often without knowing as much about him as they ought to. Okay. And the reason is is that he's probably the most important sixteenth century writer whose works have not been Edited Mm -hmm. in a modern good critical edition. So just imagine that every time you wanted to read a Shakespeare play, you had to look at an old microfilm Mm -hmm. or you had to read it in the original. Nobody would, not very many people would do that. Well, that's the way it is
0: with Tyndale. Can you set him up a little bit for people who may not know that much about him? Yes.
1: So who was William Tyndale? Um, He was a scholar. He was a pedagogue. He was a, a tutor, a teacher. But we remember him mostly because he is the person who first translates the New Testament and parts of the Old Testament into what we would recognize as being English, mm-hmm. that is, early modern English, Shakespeare's English, let's sure. say, even though he's earlier than Shakespeare. So he's he's living in the first three decades of the 16th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is very interested in translating the Bible into a English that... Uh, perhaps he said this, at least it's attributed to him, that the plowboy could read. He wanted ordinary English people to be able to read the Bible. Mm-hmm. And he actually thought that. Uh, because there were already lots of translations on the continent, Luther translated the Bible and sure. various other people translated the Bible. He thought that the Bishop of London would be thrilled when <laughs> he, a young schoolmaster, arrived in London and said, Hey, I'm going to tra- uh, let me translate the Bible. And he brought with him a classical text mm-hmm. that he had translated mm-hmm. to show that he was a competent translator. Mm-hmm. Well, unfortunately, England did have a translation of the Bible into English that had been made during the time of Chaucer. It had been made about 150 years earlier by John Wycliffe and his associates. It was not printed at this time. It was in manuscript. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, it had been banned in Mm -hmm. the early part of the 15th century. So England had laws on the books that said... You may not translate the Bible into English. Mm -hmm. Now, actually, there's lots of English translations of Gospels or of Psalms or of prayer books, of bits and pieces. But not of the whole Bible, Genesis through Revelation. So the Bishop of London looks at this young man and says, no, no. (laughs) I'm not going to give you a license to translate the Bible.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And this radicalizes Tyndale. He goes to the continent. He translates anyway. He's in Germany. He's got his New Testament already to go. It's on the press, and there's a raid. Yes. And it's confiscated. The papers are confiscated. And we only have a couple of leaves from, a few leaves from this original Bible. So he goes to Antwerp. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, sets up the press again and actually prints a version of the Bible, of the New Testament, 1526. Mm-hmm. And it is banned in England, but it is still distributed sure. <laughs> in England. We don't have a lot of... There's only a couple of copies of this that still remain. And he goes on then to translate some of the Old Testament as well before he is finally um, arrested and executed Absolutely. in 1536. Yep. Uh, but... What he did translate becomes the standard English translation. So all of the subsequent English translations, the Geneva Bible mm-hmm. in 1560, the Bishop's Bible, later the King James Bible, yep. all of these draw on Tyndale's works. When you say, you know, knock and the door shall be open to you, you know, seek yep. you shall find. That's that Tyndale, Tyndale. Mm-hmm. right? So he, u- he liked to use what we call these Anglo-Saxon words, these one-syllable short at the English words. He had a great turn of phrase. So we know him basically as a Bible translator. Mm -hmm. However, he also wrote quite a few other works. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what we are doing, a a group of us um, are working on editions of all of Tyndale's non-translation works. Wow. And those are his, sometimes they're called polemical works because he's often arguing with people. They're sermonic works. They're works in which he's defending why you ought to have an English translation.
0: So how many such works are there?
1: There are, it depends because some of them we're not sure if he wrote or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are probably somewhere around a dozen okay. of these works. Some are shorter, some are longer. Okay. They are going to end up being uh, a seven volume series wow. uh, published by a Catholic University of America Press. Interesting. Yes. Uh, And one of these books is that his his controversy with Sir Thomas More. Yes. That was published way back in 2000. And then this whole project sort of fell by the wayside. Mm -hmm. And so a group of us have picked it up in the last five years. And Mm -hmm. we're working on all of the remaining pieces at the same time. And we hope within the next three to five years to have completed this seven-volume series. It's a very important series because he is the only really important English writer of the 16th century who does not have a critical edition. Consequently, people tend to just sort of dip in very selectively into Mm -hmm. his work Mm -hmm. and therefore misinterpret him. On the one side, either interpreting him as St. Tyndale, Mm -hmm. the beginning of the Reformation, or as horrible fundamentalist Tyndale, who insisted on the literal reading of the Bible. Neither one of those two caricatures are true. He's a much more complex character. So
0: do you have a particular um, set of his works or a work that you are yourself yes. preparing critical edition for? I am.
1: So I'm the executive editor of the entire project. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of overseeing and negotiating Chivvying. among the various edit- editors. I'm not going to go into just how exacting and Uh challenging it can be to Uh work with a set of international editors, but there it is, Uh and I'm glad, grateful for them all most of the time. Um, I myself am working with a colleague from University of Connecticut, Mm -hmm. Claire cosley Kingo. We are working on the largest, most complicated of his works called The Obedience of a Christian Man. Okay. It's what I call the first unsystematic systematic theology in English. Okay. So it's not a systematic theology but it covers many 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 yep. many topics. In fact, the idea of the fact that you ought to be obedient mm-hmm. is less than 10% of the text. Right. But that's a title that would sell well under Henry VIII For sure. published in 1528. This is even before Anne, it's when Anne Boleyn is just coming on the scene but before their marriage. Right. Um, So things are just starting to become interesting, shall we say, in the court of Henry VIII Mm -hmm. in terms of religious issues. So Henry would be very interested in the title. I don't Mm -hmm. think he would be quite so happy with the book as a whole. Yes. Um, And there are many legends about this book, um, some of which are very dear to the hearts of scholars And are repeated over and over again, and which unfortunately aren't true, such as that Anne Boleyn gave this book to Henry to read, and he said, this is a book for me and all kings to read, or something, Mm -hmm. loosely paraphrased that way. Unfortunately, that's an anecdote that first appears about 50 years after the incident and Mm -hmm. cannot be authenticated. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. It's such a (laughs) lovely story. But there are other great stories. Okay, good. About Tyndale. And... The book itself, Obedience, is just a fascinating text. Mm -hmm. So we have not only the bibliographic work to do 12 copies of the 1528 edition, which all need to be collated with one another. But then also there's a second edition in 1535. Mm -hmm. And then there are six subsequent editions. And then in England, there's a collection of all of the works of Tyndale in a great big folio volume. So there are lots of texts. To look at, mm-hmm. um, several of them do not have a colophon. That means we don't know who the printer is. Yes, so we're trying to figure out. There's lots of puzzles. Yes, one of the fun things about doing an edition is that there are so many different skill sets you have to I bet. bring. You have yep. your bibliographic skill sets, transcribing. There are all kinds of history notes that you have to explain what mm-hmm. things mean mm-hmm. you have to try to figure out the puzzles of who is the printer yes um and so there's and there's also just the interpretive work trying to present a more complete and coherent picture mm-hmm. of william Tyndale, the reformer the man the polemicist um, and the, social, the worker for social justice, a, yep. a great deal of Tyndale's work, particularly in the obedience, mm-hmm. is really taking England to task <laughs> for the ways in which it is unjust to the poor and particularly unjust to
0: women. See, there you go. And I can see that Henry would not have been so necessarily not thrilled about necessarily these necessarily happy critiques. about all yes, of that no, critique. No. No. Well, it sounds fascinating, Susan, and I'm sure, I mean, you are one of the... People I know who has done a lot of editing work, so I think that's something that really fits a lot of your strengths and interests. Yes, I
1: wasn't really keen on taking on this project. I inherited it from one of my former professors, mm-hmm. who's now retired, um, and I resisted for some time because it's a huge project. Mm-hmm. But now I am actually thoroughly enmeshed in it and finding it intriguing. Well, and I'm glad, even though it's a, a a lot of work over a lot of years. I do
0: think it's a worthwhile project. I, that's amazing. And so now you also talked about Anne Locke. Oh, and that's yes. something you've just finished, so congratulations. Yes. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about that project.
1: Oh, Anne Locke. So Anne Locke is the woman who lures me into serious study mm-hmm. of the 16th century. When I was in graduate school, I split my interests between contemporary literary theory, Mm -hmm. which I was very interested in and which I actually did my dissertation in, and early modern and did quite a lot of work um, in various seminars and so forth at the Folger Shakespeare Library in D.C., which is one of our premier institutions for early modern study. Mm -hmm. When I came to Calvin, I was actually asked to teach early modern, and so I thought I should have a research project. Yes. So I walked up to the meter center. This was before good, you came. Good. Good. Uh, but Paul Field was here, mm-hmm. and I started reading things and mm-hmm. looking around and sort of saying, "What? What's here?" And became interested in Geneva and John Knox because someone at a 16th century conference was putting together a panel and needed one more paper on john knox Mm -hmm. and i said well sure why not (laughs) i'm at the meter center paul fields appointed me to some things by john knox he says there's some interesting letters to women right i thought oh yes well i didn't know that Mm -hmm. so i started reading john knox's letters to women in the meter center i can remember the table i was sitting at, reading these letters and i come across a whole set of letters to this person called Anne Locke, Mistress mm. Anne Locke. Mm-hmm. And I was hooked mm-hmm. because Knox is deferring to her, is asking for her advice, mm-hmm. um, is also giving her advice, as Knox was wont to do. Yes, um, And I said to Paul, who is Anne Locke? Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm not really quite sure, <laughs> but I think we have a book here that she wrote we have a facsimile of a book that she wrote uh-huh. and this was Lewis Lupton and his little facsimile of Anne Locke's first book so I opened it up and I'm reading through it and there are poems and I said "Who has ever written on these poems mm-hmm. and Paul said I don't know but we could look it up and we find out that maybe three people sure. have written on these poems. And I look at them, I say, but it's a sonnet sequence, mm-hmm. and it's 1560, and that's earlier than most of the sonnet sequences in English. Why hasn't anybody written a book about this woman? And Paul mm-hmm. says to me, why don't you?
0: Ah, good for Paul.
1: So I did. <laughs> <laughs> so so actually then, I was very fortunate, because this is in the late 90s. Yes, and the field of women's uh, literature, and particularly recovering women's voices from the yes. 16th and 17th century, was really getting underway. Yes, absolutely. P- so I went to a, a weekend uh, conference with Barbara Lewalski at the Folger. I was fortunate enough to meet a couple of other people who were doing dissertations that involved Anne Locke. Mm-hmm. And we met together. Um, And I started working on an edition of her works. Mm -hmm. So she's just a fascinating person. She's a merchant class woman. Her parents both serve in the court of Henry VIII. Mm -hmm. Her mother's serving the queens, various queens. And her father, Stephen Vaughn, serving as a diplomat. Sure. Anne Locke herself marries sort of up. She marries within the merchant class, but she marries the son of one of the sheriff's of London mm-hmm. when Mary Tudor comes to the throne and Roman Catholicism is the official religion and Locke and her two small children and her maid and her husband travel to the continent. Right. Then he goes back to London. We think it's a little yes. hard to know, yep. take care of family business. She goes on to Geneva, which is where John Knox is. Mm-hmm. She's in Geneva for a couple of years. She hears Calvin preaches French sermons. She's a very well-educated woman. Um, And we know that she reads and speaks and writes French, Latin, Mm -hmm. probably Mm -hmm. Greek, as well Mm -hmm. as English. And when she comes back, she translates some of Calvin's sermons. She adds her own sermonic preface to the Duchess of Suffolk. She adds a set of poems on uh, Psalm 51 Mm -hmm. um, and publishes this book in 1560, which is a very gutsy move because... Elizabeth I is now on the throne, and Elizabeth does not like Geneva. No. Because she doesn't like Knox, and she doesn't like Calvin. Yes. And so for Anne Locke to say, the good medicine that I am bringing to you, Duchess of Suffolk, uh, by the way, Queen Elizabeth, is the medicine from John Calvin, Mm -hmm. which I have put into an English box. And then she continues throughout her life to be a very important figure, uh, an important reformer. So in this last book, I I have talked about her not so much as a woman writer, but as a reformer. She's one of the reformers of the English Reformation, and Mm -hmm. she's seen that way in her own lifetime. Mm -hmm. Um, By the middle of her life, 1576... Uh, She's married by this time to her second husband. She's praised in print Mm -hmm. as a model with other um, merchant class, but women who were also part of the court as a model for Queen Elizabeth. Right. And at the end of her life, she publishes another book. Mm -hmm. She has books that are dedicated to her. So her life becomes a kind of prism through which you can see the whole of the 16th century, mm-hmm. it's re- particularly its religious, but also its cultural and social life. Mm-hmm. And that's the way I presented her in this latest book.
0: So the latest book focuses on her later life and her aspect as a reformer?
1: Well, I think she's a reformer right from right from the start. Right from the start. So right. it it's a it a book in which all of her own writings are included. It's all in modern English. Good. So the first book is for scholars. Right. It's the critical edition. You must have that first. Yes. As we do for Tendale first. Yep, sure. But now this is a book for students, mm-hmm. for the ordinary reader. It has it has all of her own original writing in it in modern English, modern uh, modern spelling, modern sure. punctuation. Yes. I haven't changed her wording, um, but it's much easier to to re- read. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also included a great deal of contextual material, so all of Knox's letters to her. Right. I was wondering Some about of, that. We have the proposal letter, one of the proposal letters that her second husband wrote to her. And oh, I've good. I transcribed that from the manuscript copy mm-hmm. that we still mm-hmm. have. And so you, could, you can see the sort of the whole of the 16th century. She was born probably around 1534, about the same lifespan as Queen Elizabeth. Right. And so you can see that whole period um, through her life, through people writing to her or about her, as well as her own
0: works. And, and her own experience was, I mean, it wasn't at all easy. Wasn't one of her children die in Geneva? Yeah,
1: so when she was in Geneva, we have we still have the list of Exiles who arrived in Geneva, so we know the date that she arrived, and then four days later, we have another list, which are, is a list of deaths, and her small daughter hmm. died. And just her husband four was days. away. Her husband is not there. She's yep. there with her little older, her older son Harry, mm-hmm. and her maid yeah. and her friends. But yeah. it was a very difficult time, and both of her books are about suffering, mm-hmm. about the hardship of being a Christian, and yet the comfort of knowing that you are you still belong to God and are his beloved child.
0: In the midst of all this. In the exactly. midst of all the suffering. So who's bringing out this book? Who's publishing it?
1: So this is part of the Other Voice series, yes. and it's coming out from Eater and from Arizona State.
0: And when will it appear, do you think?
1: I hope. I would really love it to be the end of this year. It may, or the beginning of next, because... The first book was published in 1999, so it would right. be lovely for it to come out in 2019, Well, so That years would be fantastic. Yes. And
0: when it comes out, we'll do a book launch for you. Oh, that would be excellent. great. The Meter that Center would be, would be thrilled so to do that.
1: I do think lots of people are going to enjoy reading about her. As I as I've talked about her, um, people are just amazed that they've never heard of her, for yes. one thing, and then fascinated by her life.
0: I think that would make a really good Reformation Day. Um, presentation, you know, because we try and do a Reformation Day event every year for yes. the Meter Center, so that would oh, be kind I of a so. a cool thing. Maybe I'm going to hope that the book is coming out <laughs> really okay. quickly. I'll I'll press. Yeah, this tell them to see. tell them Reformation Day. We want it to come out. That would yes. be that would be really exciting. There's supposed
1: to be an article coming out in New Yorker online about her because a just without this person knowing, I was publishing a new book. She had actually a, a fiction writer had actually read. Ah first book okay the hard Yes. Scholarly book and got become fascinated with Anlock. Okay. And has written an article about her life. There you so are. Hopefully that's coming out soon. You as well.
0: never know. That would be kind of fun to put those two <laughs> together. Yes, somehow. it would. So, so we've talked a lot about how you've used the Meter Center and its collections, particularly for the first book on Anlock. Right. What would you say is the, the, the relevance or the significance of somewhere like the Meter Center, especially now as more and more is available digitally online, primary sources and so on? Right. Why have something like the Meter Center?
1: Well, it's not an either-or. Mm-hmm. There are wonderful resources to be had digitally. Mm-hmm. And I, frankly, the Tyndale edition, with all of its many, many copies, would just not be possible if we couldn't take photographs. Right. Of When I go to a library, I can sure. take a photograph. I can have that, my own digital copy, yep. basically, so that I can pore over it mm-hmm. um, and, and work through it. So um, I don't in any way see print and digital as in competition Mm -hmm. i see them very much as working together especially for this recovery of voices but you you must have repositories of the originals yes there are so many things to look at there's bindings but particularly marginalia there's Mm -hmm. There's signatures of people you 're trying to figure out who read these books yes um and sometimes you can puzzle it out by looking at a photograph, but often you simply can't mm-hmm. and there are also times when you just um, so I know this from working with a Tyndale right now the, the even the printed margins they 're not printed very well sometimes, yes. and so you have to actually have a have a magnifying glass and the original to yep. pour over some of the printing, just yes. to figure it out. Yep. Um, and these are... I, what can I, how can I say it? I mean, these are precious resources, yes. right? They're yep. they're originals. Once they're gone, they're gone. If yes. something happens to them, you're never going to get these originals back. And it's interesting because people have been interested in Tyndale for a long time. But people 100 years ago, when they looked at these copies, they had different questions than yes. I have now. Yep. They just didn't care about who's scribbled in the margin. Right. I do care about that. Right. So if we only had their transcription from 100 years ago, we would be missing lots of information. And I'm sure 100 years from now, Mm -hmm. people will have yet other questions mm-hmm. or there will be new techniques for looking below the print or for figuring things out about the paper or, that the, we bindings. Can, or yep. the bindings or the bindings um so these artifacts continue the original artifacts continue to yield information mm-hmm. they are little Each book, even if it just seems ordinary, is a little treasure box. And you never quite get to the bottom of that treasure box.
0: Absolutely. So as well as as teaching in the English department, you're also the director of a center at Calvin. um, And that's the Calvin Center for Christian Scholarship. Correct. Um, What role do you think that centers and institutes like the Meter Center, like the Calvin Center for Christian Scholarship, what role do you think they'll play as we now become Calvin University? What, 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 what should be their mission as part of the bigger mission of this university now?
1: I think that the centers and institutes have always, in a sense, been pushing Calvin College towards Calvin University. Mm-hmm. They've always functioned as part of a university model. That mm-hmm. is, they've had a very outward reach to larger populations, to worldwide groups of scholars in particular, but also to students. That's certainly true at the Meter Center. Mm -hmm. It's also true of CCCS. Um, So this being able to in a sense, bring Calvin's walls down and offer our resources to many more people. Centers and institutes have always been at the forefront of that. And I think we'll just continue Mm -hmm. that mission and I hope expand it um, Mm -hmm. as well. We also, as we've said, we bring students to the meter center particularly. So we have this, uh, an inward focus sort of, opening up the larger world to our students. Yes. But I think of that opening up, that expanse, that extent, that pushing outward Mm -hmm. that centers and institutes uh, are known for.
0: Yep. I mean, my sense is that each of the centers and institutes functions a little bit like uh, almost a lab in which you can produce outward-facing scholarship research that really spreads the name of this institution beyond... Grand Rapids beyond west michigan to the wider world and really almost puts us on par with many larger institutions that are research active i mean these apart from the research done by individual colleagues the centers and institutes really play a phenomenal role as essentially yeah research labs producing scholarship for the wider world
1: i agree um, and also disseminating yeah. it through our it, from my um, center f- through the Calvin press, yes, and our particularly our signature series, the Calvin Shorts, mm-hmm. which aims to take complex ideas and make them readily accessible mm-hmm. in a short format for the interested layperson and I think that that has always been one of calvin 's missions and it 's a very important one it continues to be an important mission of Calvin to say that our ideas are that we have many audiences. We have the academy as an audience, our scholarly peers, but also the church, also uh, intelligent readers generally, as well Mm -hmm. as students, Um, and that scope and reach, which in some ways, particularly in terms of pedagogy and reaching sort of public scholarship, which is now a a big issue for a lot of universities, we've always been doing that. And I think being a university now just gives us a larger platform, Um, encourages us to do that. Centers and institutes also, you said they're like little laboratories. I agree. Because we are um, small entities, Mm -hmm. we are also flexible, so we're able to try things. Nimble. We are nimble. (laughs) And we've we've been that. I think we'll continue to be that. So we're Mm -hmm. able to sort of try things, experiment, and Mm -hmm. then perhaps bring the university along with us. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, Susan, it has been a delight to talk with you. I've always enjoyed our collaborations on various projects between the Meter Center and the Calvin Center for Christian Scholarship. And, um, you know, your classes coming to the center, the work we've been able to do together. I've always really valued it. Thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate the Meter Center so much and your leadership. So thank you, Karine.